Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is brought to you by the business events team at Discover Halifax. Hello, I'm stand-up comedian James Mullinger and the co-founder of Edit Magazine. This is Mullinger Meets Canadians, the podcast where we meet Canadians who are making waves on the world stage. Today I'm headed to meet Tarek Haddad, the founder and CEO of Peace by Chocolate. Ever since reading the book about the Haddad family journey, I've been waiting for a chance to speak with him. It brought tears of joy and hope to my eyes. The family found refuge in Canada and have brought all of their dreams to life here. This really shows how Atlantic Canadians rose to the occasion of welcoming Syrian refugees and also the dedication and strength of this incredible family. Tarek has inspired people throughout the country and around the world as a Syrian-Canadian entrepreneur and public speaker. His family came to Antigonish, Nova Scotia in 2012 after their home and chocolate factory in Syria were bombed. Tarek was studying medicine in Syria, but after finding out his qualifications didn't transfer over to Canada, he decided to rebuild his family business. Their story has become a beacon of light, notably shared by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in his 2016 United Nations speech. The company has grown to have their products on the shelves of Sobeys and hundreds of other retailers across Canada, and they now have a new beautiful boutique store in downtown Halifax in the Queen's Mark district. As things open up, Tarek continues to share his story at conferences and events around the world, most recently in Dubai. I'm meeting with Tarek in the place he now calls home that has welcomed him with open arms. Hi, James. Derek. How's it going? Great. Really good to see you. Oh, it is such virtual a... hugs. Thank you. Virtual <laughs> hugs all around. Um, Thank you so much. No, it's such an honor to finally meet you. I'm a, a huge fan of, of. Well, you know how much I love your chocolate. So. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here in Antigone. Welcome to to the town. Isn't well, it lovely? It is. I love it here, and uh, it's nice to be here with very much the king of the town right now. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for stopping by. Oh, it's a joy. I guess I would love to start by kind of asking something which I've never really kind of heard before, and and that is, what was life like for you in Syria before civil war broke out? Well, it was like every other person's dream, you know, to live in peace, to have kind of the safety, living with your family members, enjoying these kind of connections, and doing the things that you love. Like, you know, the ultimate goal for every person on this planet is to have a happy life, to have a peaceful joy with family members, you know, enjoying connections with friends. But before everything started in Syria, it was all about spreading happiness for our family, right? This was the mission in Syria for my entire family. Since 1986, my dad started that chocolate company in Damascus and it grew up from there. My dad came once after uh, a wedding of my cousin and told my grandmother, well, I'm not gonna be a civil engineer anymore. She's like, what are you gonna be? And she was like, well, I wanna make an impact. 
I want to do something different. I want to do and jump out of my comfort zone. That's when things started to get interesting. And that's when my father started playing with chocolate ingredients in the home kitchen. Imagine cocoa beans, cocoa butter, and everything is in the home kitchen. That is a child dream. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) My dad was was almost 24 at that time, and he was really excited just to get into it and to play with chocolate and create something new for himself and for the family. And then he realized that at the wedding, when everyone was eating chocolate, everyone was happy. He said, no one eats chocolate will ever be sad. So that was really the mission for him. And just continued after he met my mother, which I will tell you the story about their their first meeting shortly. When they met, you know, that was the passion for them is to continue the mission. Then I was born, you know, my siblings and all my family members were living in one building in Damascus. So my grandmother was on the first floor. We were on the second floor, my uncles and my aunts. And uh, every Saturday we used to have the supper together. Every Saturday. We, you cannot miss a supper with your grandmother or she will kick you out of the house. <laughs> she has no joke about it. So every Saturday I used to um, call my grandmother and like, yeah, I'm ready for it. Let's, let's bring the supper, let's bring the family, which was really lovely. So it was a real family community spirit. I mean, it sounds like an idyllic childhood, an idyllic upbringing. And again, the fact that your father, even before you were born, has devoted his life to bringing joy to people. Um, My father was going on uh, on buses in Damascus, giving people chocolate for free. Wow. Just to see, you know, the reaction. And that just brought him a lot of satisfaction. He was like, you cannot get feedback at that time because there was no YouTube or Facebook in 1986. (laughs) So it was like, how am I going to get feedback from my customers if I don't give away chocolate? That was really his, his own way. He was just going around giving people free chocolates, and uh, that's how he built his repetition. That's it was amazing. amazing. So rather than likes and shares, he went by ums and ahs, right. and, and then the, the sound of joy. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And just seeing the reactions, live reactions, yeah, yeah, and not someone behind the screen. So you cannot fake a reaction if you are in person, right? That's true. I mean, do you find that the Canadians or indeed people globally don't really have an understanding of what Syria was like for people before civil war broke out? Because in a lot of cases, this, you know, people want to, obviously, the news dwells on the tragedy, but you don't often hear about what day-to-day life was like. hundred percent. And the reason for that, I think, is uh, first, uh, media awareness. There was not too much uh, talks about Syria and the ancient civilization that started there five, six thousand years ago. Damascus is the most ancient city in the world. You can, everywhere you walk in Damascus in the old city, you, you would see buildings that they are 3,000 years old, 4,000 years old. It goes back centuries and centuries in history, and no one just talks about it. Everyone now talks about uh, the war, everyone talks about the refugees. The first thing when you Google Syria is the Syrian war. That's what shows up. No one really tells you about the even the good memories that people had before the war. And that's very unfortunate. I remember very well, my hope was that everyone would know what Syria was like before the war, so they would be able to compare and they would be able to know how horrible a war can be. Yes. And no one can connect to this unless they live it, right? right. The same thing now, you know, imagine telling people in January 2020, your life will be so disturbed in a few months you cancel your flights, you'll be stuck in your home, you cannot leave it. And everyone will be like jogging, we're like, wow, you know, what is this like about, you know? Yeah. But until they tried it, until we had to live through it, then we knew the reality of hardship, then we knew the reality of struggle. But still, in 2013, when uh, we had the option to get killed or flee our country, we decided to flee. We were forced to flee our homes. 
and we were forced to leave everything behind. While in 2020, we were asked to stay in our homes and to stay safe. 2013, we were forced to leave our homes. 2020, we were asked to stay in our homes. And then I said, I will take the second. I will take a pandemic over a war yeah. because a virus can be much more merciful than a war. And I think that's what Canadians started connecting much more to people with struggles around the world because there are millions of people still struggling up until now and not only Syrians, but all around the world. Yeah, I mean, that really puts it into perspective for people, as you say. So to give people a clearer view, like for you personally, in the years building up to this kind of terrible moment when you had to make this terrible decision to, to leave, you had no choice but to leave. What was life like for you? What were you doing in your life? And what were your plans? Well, I was growing up on the passion to become a physician. And the reason for that was, uh, if you are in Syria or in the Middle East, 99% of the mothers there, they want you to become a physician. <laughs> and 1% of them, they want you to be an engineer. So I escaped from being an engineer to becoming a physician. But I really loved becoming a physician because uh, I truly believed in helping people. I truly believed in treating people. I truly believed in medicine as a noble profession. You know, you are saving lives. And what can be nobler? So I was connecting, you know, my family had this big passion spreading happiness. I'm like, you guys are going to spread happiness. I'm going to treat people, you know. So I was correlating between both of them, between medicine seeking to diminish the pain of human beings while chocolate seeking to raise happiness. And there was always that mutual point that I hold onto it. So in, uh, by the late 2000s, I got into med school and I started my passion and my dream. And I was really excited for that bright future and to be honest, I was really, really honored to get into med school because it was so competitive. I'm sure. It was so competitive. And then when I made it there, just within a few years, uh, the war started. So then we had to make that decision. And at some point, you know, when, when you have to make some tough decisions like this, you'd be always thinking about the pros, the cons. Should I stay there? Should I continue my studies? Or should we just leave? And then at the moment, by the... Uh, late 2012, the factory was bombed, and then our lives were all disrupted. So at the end of the day, I think what started with us as a passion to spread happiness, and for me uh, personally to study medicine, ended up by a decision that we do not want to become numbers of the victims of the war that we did not want to be part of. And that was really the reason why our family took that decision to flee in the first place. And I would put it out there, but no one was born to immigrate. No, no one was born to leave their homeland. Everyone Especially was not born. under those circumstances. Right? Exactly, exactly. And you do not take these decisions overnight. You know, you have to plan ahead. If you are going to uh, on vacation, you plan like years and years, you know, to make sure that you are really going to get the benefit out of it, you know. But imagine being like an immigrant or a refugee where you are leaving everything behind in a split of the moment without any planning. Whether you know you flee with your life and become a newborn baby in a new place where you have to rebuild everything from scratch, or you're gonna die, you know? These are the two options, there's not the third one. And you know, that was the hard part for me, but at the end of the day, I realized when we had to flee Syria to Lebanon, and that really prepared us for the hardships of the pandemic too is that human beings are flexible, are adaptable. You know, we can do whatever we want. As long as we are alive, anything can happen, anything can change. And that's basically the values that we brought to Canada with us. Incredible. How did that feel when you had to make that terrible decision where it was actually a case of we have to leave our home 
in order to stay alive. I mean, I mean, how on earth did you stay positive during that time? And, That's right. And what's going through your mind? It was, it was not an easy decision for sure. It happened after uh, me and my brother were walking on a sidewalk in downtown Damascus and the mortar rocket hit near me and him. My brother lost his consciousness uh, at that time. So I carried him. We ran into the second house because our first house was burned and bombed. And then I told my family, well, it's not time to do medicine. It's not time to do business. This is time to survive. And then that survival instinct, you know, got us all out of the country. Within the next morning at 5 a.m., we packed everything we can. I mean by packed everything we can, it's just a cloth on, our, on ourselves because you cannot really take anything with you or you'll be stopped at the borders. No, they're not going to let you go. Maybe you'll be killed. So we went in that little tiny car that's left for us after everything was destroyed. You know, we had, we, we had built a chocolate empire in the Middle East and everything just was gone in a split of the moment. So by March 2013, it was the moment when I told my family, yes, you know, it's time to, to leave. And we headed to the Lebanese borders at that time. And we were stopped many times on the way by the uh, military checkpoints. And so many of them were looking at me and saying, Oh, you are, you are going to betray your country and leave it just to stay alive? You should go fight for your country. I'm like, I was not born to fight. I was born to spread peace. Yeah. And that was that continued with me until now. So we reached the Lebanese borders. Uh, we had a lot of trouble actually to get out of the country at that time. But then uh, we made it. And the moment, you know, after we crossed the Lebanese borders, we stopped the car after like a long sigh and like I told my father, we, we made it. Imagine me, my, my mother, my father, and four of my siblings were in the car that could barely fit four of us. And we're just like jammed sitting on the laps of each other. And we cannot just imagine, you know, what the life could be for us. We have nothing in our pockets even. We cannot take anything with us because we were, we were searched with every single part of our party, you know, and it was humiliating in, in every level. But then it was all worth it just to save the family lives and family members. So when we arrived in Lebanon, that's when things started to get, you know, interesting. We were called refugees and we had that certificate that tells you you are just a number. And it was destined to bring you down. Right. But then we changed that destination and it brought us up. It brought our spirits up. We turned the, the role of victims into victors. And then, you know, we started asking, how can we help even other Syrians coming? We started volunteering. All my family members were doing amazing things, you know, helping their Lebanese neighbors, Syrian neighbors. And we just didn't want to, we didn't want to become victims, right? Like life will always bring these hardships for you. It's not going to end. It's not going to end, you know, from war to pandemic, there are struggles always going to come, but uh, we have to be ready with mindsets of, uh, help, support, resiliency is very important. Yeah. Resiliency at the times of adversity, and that's really what helped us during being refugees in Lebanon. But I mean, where does that resilience come from? Where, as you say, you get through, and you said it was, you know, you had trouble getting in, but I mean, it, it was terrifying getting in, and you, and you know, there was so much danger and, and potential danger and real danger for you to get there. And then you get there, and you're all there, and of course, you, what you just described, like you all kind of hug and know that you've made it. But then, how do you then? transition relief into we're going to help others that I find incredible well you know as as a human beings we all have the moral responsibility if you are at a level where you can help you have to do it 
you know, you cannot just escape. And uh, the values that our family held for a long time was about compassion, kindness, generosity, empathy. We did not leave those behind us. We brought them with us to Lebanon and that really continued with our family for a long time. So I really thought that whatever war will kill in you, it will destroy your life, it will take away your business, your studies, whatever you do, it will not take away your skills and your values. This is something that is your intellectual property, right? As long as you are alive, you'll not lose them. And that's really what we brought to Lebanon with us. And uh, that's why we believe that supporting others was the right thing to do at that time. And that's why that mindset certainly had helped us until we realized that there is no way for us to help others anymore until we really can help ourselves and get us out of Lebanon during the crisis at that time when there were millions of people arriving in the country. And it was uh, certainly we knew at that time we cannot go back to Syria. We cannot stay in Lebanon for a long time. And that's why we tried to find a new home. And on the mission to find a new home, that's why Canada came. So tell me a bit about the moment that you first heard that you were going to be moving to Canada. And of course, most importantly, when you first heard the words Nova Scotia. Oh my God, Nova Scotia is another story, but let's start with Canada. You know, Canada, I heard about Canada since I was, I think, seven years old. And all the stories that I hear from people that they were coming as tourists to Syria or whoever really contacted us in the family, they all told us how cold the country is. So that's the first thing you would hear about the country. In 2014, at the time when I was, you know, the most I think frustrated about getting out of Lebanon, getting out of the status of becoming a refugee. And I wanted to change the lives for our family. So I finished my volunteering role. I was working with the UNHCR and WHO at that time and many local organizations for relief efforts. And I was doing late day work. You know, it was like 10 p.m. I finished there and I wanted to get a cab to go see my family uh, where they were staying in a little tiny room inside, which was a 30 minute drive from Beirut. So I got out of my office, I went down and there was a cab driver there. You know, I asked him if he can drive me. He was like, yeah, absolutely. And my family lives there, so I'm going anyway. So um, we were in the, in the cab and you know that cab drivers, they talk a lot. <laughs> like they tell you stories about their childhood, about their family, about whoever, you know, there was with them in the car. And they know in every topic, like they know about immigration, they know about economy, they know about politics, they know about everything. <laughs> they know it all. It's a global, it's a global pandemic. So the guy was really kind. He was a kind Lebanese man. He was like, I see that you have fears in you. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm really fearful about the future for our family. And I'm really frustrated about the situation. And he was like, did you hear about the scholarship at the Canadian embassy? I'm like, no, I did not. He was like, maybe you can fly there and can continue your medical studies in Canada if you go. I, you know, I really did not trust that this was a true advice. <laughs> I got home and then I Googled it and it was all true. And I applied and then I forgot about it. A month after that, that was early 2015, I got an email that I was invited for an interview at the Canadian Embassy. I'm like, that is true. You know, the guy really started to change my life. And then I went to the interview and then they told me, I maybe I will not go on the scholarship, but I was invited to go with my entire family to Canada. And then I started thinking about the little act of kindness that started this whole thing. I will never meet that cab driver again, never. 
I will never cross paths with him. Maybe he will never know the impact that he made in my life. But this is really the true seeds that we, you know, you plant and then you just hope that it will bloom with kindness and it blooms with changing future for other people who are struggling. And then I called my family and then I said, guys, I have very sweet news for you today. Don't sleep. You know, I arrived home around midnight and then I knocked on the door. My dad opened the door. My mother was hand and my siblings were all excited. Really, what's, what's happening? Tell us. Then I said, folks, we're traveling. And then my dad was like, oh, why? I'm like, we're traveling to a very interesting place. My dad was like, where is that? I don't know. Just tell me. And everyone started guessing. Everyone, my dad started was like, Germany? I said, no, I'm Muslim. Like Denmark? No. The US? No. Brazil? No. Argentina? No. Turkey? No. Egypt? You know, they tried every country on earth. <laughs> and they didn't say Canada. I was surprised, you know. <laughs> they really, literally tried every country on earth. And then I, I waited for them to finish. And then I said, guys, we're traveling to Canada. And their faces were frozen. Like, <laughs> and, they, you know, after a moment of silence, they told me, but Canada is too cold. Yeah. Their faces were not as frozen as they were no, there, right? Probably. They, absolutely not. And then absolutely lovely how the family started asking all the questions about Canada, Googling, knowing more. It was such an amazing moment. That night we did not sleep. I remember very well. We spent the entire night until the morning just Googling, you know, learning, you know, exciting stuff. And, you know, the only thing you know about Canada before you come here, honestly, is things like Looney, Tooney, Double Double, and <laughs> all the funny, the funny stuff, the hockey things, you know. They, no one really tells you a lot about the winter before you come here. So I always say that immigrants are tricked yes. before you come here because everything you see online is every video, every article, every, everything is between May and October. So true. No one tells you anything between November and April. That's the secret of the country that keeps it until the immigrant arrives here. They don't want anyone knowing. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I also moved in winter, but I viewed my house in, in summer. In the summer. And the driveway is that steep. That's right. And, and, the, and the realtor said, this is, the house has been on the market for five oh years. My God. I thought, I wonder why. And then I moved here <laughs> in, in February 2014, yeah. slid down that drive, and I'm like, nobody absolutely, told me. Absolutely. And that's why they only show you, you know, all the uh, photos, the videos. It's all in, in, in the summertime or the fall, which is really beautiful. You yeah. know, Canada is very beautiful uh, one season, which is winter. Summer is just one day, yes. right? And, and fall is one day. It's, it, it's, but it's, and it's worth it. And of course, the thing is, you learn to embrace the winter. Absolutely. There's, to... there's so much, there's so much fun to it, to be honest. You know, I arrived here on December 19th. Wow. Uh, so uh, I, I was on the plane uh, with, uh, with a friend of mine, and he was really scared about the winter. And he started Googling all about uh, um, Canada. But then he did not know how to speak English. So when he went online, the tutor on YouTube, we were telling him, if you want to start a conversation with an English speaker in Canada, always talk about the weather. <laughs> and then the only sentence my friend saved as a non-English speaker is like, you go to someone, you open a conversation by saying, hello there, it's a beautiful weather out there. <laughs> and then we arrived on, on December 18th, and it was like minus 25, but he didn't know because we just landed from the plane. We went to the interview with the officer and he went there and he was like, uh, I'm like, don't tell him it's wrong. He was like, hello, sir. It's a beautiful weather out there. <laughs> and the officer opened his eyes as big as he could. And he was like, are you serious? You know, <laughs> this can't be possible. 
my friend went out and then came back as a frozen chicken. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you don't realize what cold is until you get off the plane. Absolutely. It's like a punch in the face. It's literally like... It's, it's, it's literally like that. And I've never really tried anything that cold until I got out of the airport. But to be honest, um, all the credit goes to this country. You know, we were uh, fully embraced and welcomed to, and with, with such warmth of the people that really breaks into the hardships of the winter in this country. And that's really where I knew that this country is my home forever because people cared a lot about us. Since the moment we landed at the airport, we were greeted with such love and care. They gave us these heavy coats for the winter, you know, the, the boots, they were carrying flowers and signs and were saying, welcome to Canada. That was the trending in the entire world at that time, between December 15 until December 25th, at the time when I arrived here. Welcome to Canada was trending everywhere in the world. And people just really were, were embracing newcomers in such a way that, you know, the world has not seen before. So true. Um, and, and when did Nova Scotia come into the mix? I mean, I, and I have to say, I love the fact that essentially the message here is that we should all be listening to cab drivers That's right. a lot more. <laughs> most people are tuning out. Exactly, and they yeah. could be imparting life-changing wisdom. Life, and life most of us aren't listening. But you did. <laughs> I and... did listen, yeah. <laughs> Well, Nova Scotia came to, um, you know, to the conversation. When I arrived at the hotel on December 18th, I basically thought I was staying in Toronto. And they don't tell you where you're going to stay, by the way. They don't tell you. They, you know, you, you will arrive in Canada and then they will tell you after. So after that mystery in the night, I'm like, wow, I arrived in Toronto and then I'm planning, you know, what, what's my days is going to be uh, the, next, the next week or something. And then they called me in my hotel room. They were like, Tarek, I'm like, yes, they're like, welcome to Canada, but your flight is tomorrow. I'm like, where? And they were to Halifax. I'm like, what's Halifax? I want to stay in Canada. <laughs> they said Halifax is in Canada, just on the other side of the country. So I really didn't know what to expect, but everything I knew about Canada at that time, as immigrants, you know, you always hear about uh, Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver, which in the immigrant population, we call it the MTV. <laughs> you know, the Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver. No one tells you about Halifax. No one even mentions anything about Nova Scotia or the Maritimes for some reason. And then I was really curious, what is special about this place? What is special about the Maritimes? What's special about Atlantic Canada in general? And I arrived there the next day. People from the town, from Antigonish, they drove all the way to the airport uh, to welcome me. And they were carrying flowers and signs with my name in Arabic and English saying, welcome to Canada. I could not believe what was happening at that time. I really could not believe that uh, there are such kind of humans in this world that they care about other human beings suffering seven, 8,000 kilometers far away from them. People are busy in their lives in general. And sometimes we just get sucked into life without realizing we can help other people and change their lives at the same time. So that's what people really here in town did. And the moment when I landed in Halifax airport, I will never forget it. I have that video every time, you know, I have it on my desktop. Every time I feel that I am frustrated about something or depressed or feel that I cannot help someone, I open it and I watch myself coming through the stairs, greeted by these lovely, amazing, warm-hearted human beings and being hugged so warmly on December 19th. And then I realized that there is hope in the world and there is faith in humanity. Anchored by our maritime history and shaped by the ocean, Halifax, Nova Scotia is a breath of fresh, salty air. 
It's an ecosystem for innovation and the ultimate backdrop for your event. The Discover Halifax Business Events and Group Sales Team is united by a common purpose, to help make your event a rousing success. Think of them as your boots on the ground partners. They will put their connections, experience and local know-how to work for you. Get in touch with Discover Halifax at businesseventshalifax.com to plan your next event. How beautiful and how interesting that, as you mentioned, that Atlantic Canada is so rarely mentioned to immigrants when everything that you had lived, a life of community and family, that is all of the traits of Atlantic Canada. The small towns and cities of Atlantic Canada are the most welcoming places in the world. It's almost like a, when I would hear in England about the dream of what small towns in England were like in the 1950s, that's what it's like. Absolutely, you know, Atlantic Canada has that very special uh, touch to it. You know, Canadians are very well known for being nice. Canadians are very well known for being nice, but Antigonish is extra nice. Yes. You know, Antigonish and uh, Nova Scotia and the Maritimes are extra nice. So there's that extra and bonus of niceness yes. that comes in the DNA. It's a whole different level. I mean, that welcome that you received, and again, I mean, it was what I moved here around the same time, and it was interesting seeing what was happening back in England where politicians were getting votes by saying that they wouldn't let refugees come to the country and they wouldn't let immigrants in. And then meanwhile, here, I see our Prime Minister here welcoming people and politicians and communities welcoming people. And to me, that signified the, the gulf of difference between a place like England where fear-mongering and, and essentially hate is a way to get votes compared to here where it's about love and compassion. Uh, absolutely. Now, fear-mongering was uh, the the key disaster for uh, humanity for a long time. And when people and politicians were trying to play on that key, you know, we can divide people by telling them your differences will, will create barriers. They did not really let them know that we are all humans, we share a lot, we have the same amount of bones, we have the same amount of blood. It doesn't matter where you are from, we all share the same purpose in life, to live in peace and happiness. No one tells you that. And then that's when things start to get complicated about hatred from the other people, right? About fear, about the differences. No one in this world, you know, would have ever imagined that as much as we are so well connected during this time, there would be these kind of divisions between human beings. Because how hard it is for you to know about other cultures right now. Everything is at the click of your fingertips. You can learn about anything and anyone in this world. So there is no excuse for ignorance, right? There is no excuse for bigotry. At this time, there's no excuse for hatred. And that's what really has motivated us in, since we arrived in this country to share our story more and more because people, people want to know, right? They, they want to know where you are from and they want to know about your culture and they want to celebrate it with you. So that's what we felt is we have that responsibility to share what our culture is all about, to share what our goal is in the country about. And uh, we knew that no one is going to come knock on our doors and ask us in the first place. As a newcomer to a place, we have that responsibility to get out and start networking. I have one of my friends in Syria. He always used to tell me, and this was my mentor, if it's not working, go networking. Right, so people exactly people. you have to know people and you have to network with them, especially if you are coming to a new country. You have to learn more about them and tell them more about you. Sure, 
I mean, what were those first few months like for you? You, you arrive here, you're in this small town, in this province that you'd never heard of a few weeks prior. Talk me through that, that process. It was a very exciting time, you know, when I landed here in town, the community group that brought us here called Safe City Antigonish Families Embrace, all the credit goes to them, you know, they are amazing people from the town, they're amazing leaders really that they wanted to help our family and other families. And I realized on the way to, uh, to Antigonish, I was in a car with two physicians, you know, I was picked up, you know, and there were many cars there, but I'm like, yeah, let's have a conversation about medicine <laughs> on the way to Antigonish having no idea what Antigonish was on the map. <laughs> and two hours in, you know, I realized that the physicians are surgeons too. And then when I was, you know, I was driving, there was nothing on the highway, except like trees on both sides. <laughs> and then I thought that they, exactly, that they were kidnapping me. <laughs> it's like, like a mob head. <laughs> yes. I'm like, is that even serious? Like, I, I turned to them with so much fear in me. I'm like, uh, doctors, uh, I really need my kidneys. <laughs> I really thought I was in a new place where I was down and going to a place where people are going to take my kidneys and sell them. So and then that was not the reality. I arrived in town and then I had the best dinner of my life with a group of people in town, the safe group, uh, as well as the family that I stayed with, Dr. Robert Sears and his wife Moira. They hosted me for two weeks since I arrived here because they knew I was waiting for my family, although our house was ready. And I spent the best time of my life with them, you know, learning about Canada, Canadian culture, what's the differences there. And I, you know, I shoveled the snow for the first time in my life as well with them. So, That's a rite of passage. <laughs> yes. yeah. So they taught me a lot of uh, survival skills here. And they were just amazing, absolutely. And then so obviously after that, your, your family came. And then at what point did you realize what you were going to do and, and that you were going to revive the family business? Well, it was all based on the, uh, the mission uh, that our family here had the value of giving back and contributing. Because we know Canada has given us a lot by even opening the doors for us. We did not ask this country to do anything further to us other than just opening the door for us at the airport. But this country did not end the niceness and the welcome right there. It continued with us every single day after that. So when we landed here and when our family arrived within like two weeks, it was so interesting when my father woke up the next morning and he was like, okay, you know, he rolled up his sleeves and he was like, let's get to work. Yeah. <laughs> let's get to work. I was like, what are you going to do here? And my dad at that time, I remember very well, we you know, we did an interview at the airport and my dad told the interviewer I was a translator to him. He said, maybe we will start a chocolate factory again in Canada, maybe in 10 years, he said. He thought it would take a long time, you know, to learn everything about the culture, the business, you know, managing finances, all of that, getting loans, uh, raising capital, all of that, he thought it would take a lot of time. And then we registered the business within a month and a half after arriving here. It was absolutely phenomenal. And, you know, all the credit goes to as well to Frank Gallant. Frank was the key supporter for our family, for our business with his family and with other people as well in town. But then when our family arrived, they were very well integrated because the community group that brought us here were brought, was broken into committees, committee for integration, committee for employment, a committee for education. And I remember very well when my mother arrived here, seeing my siblings, Ahmed and Tigrid and Batul, 
who were out of schools for almost three years after we left Syria. And then the morning of January 12th at that time, she saw them the first time on a school bus. And she really was tearing up. And she was like, you know, this is like a dream for her. And it was just like that heartwarming moment when I knew my family was getting back to life again. I knew that life is happy again, right? And then I realized that let's get back to the life that we had in Syria, but do it here and do it differently and do it in a way that speaks about our culture to the community and to the country. That's amazing. So a 10-year plan became a 10-week plan. Exactly, exactly. It just turned out very, very fast. And what changed that, I have to tell you this. What happened is after a few weeks of arriving here, me and my dad, we were sitting at a restaurant table in, uh, on a place that is almost 40 minutes away from here. And someone came to us who looked really curious about us. And he knew that we just came to Canada. He was really kind. He was nice. But then he came to us and he was really afraid about the economy here. And he was afraid about the jobs. He came to me and said, welcome to Canada, but why did you come here to take our jobs? And then I was really shocked at that moment. You know, it was the first time that I had to encounter uh, this. But then, again, you know, positive mindset. That's what I have. <laughs> educate the, the, exactly. the, the, educate the ignorant. Exactly. Right? And then, and then I, I, I turned to him and I said, well, thank you so much for expressing your concerns, but we did not come here to take jobs. We came here to create them. I said, we came here to contribute and to create the jobs that you are talking, you're talking about that we were going to steal or take away. And then he was speechless, you know, he just didn't say anything after that. <laughs> and, and to be honest, you know, the same guy who said that came to me after we opened the factory. And then he said, that's the truth. You told me the truth and you did not lie. And that's how you, you change mindsets, you know, with, with real actions and not only talking the talks, but walking the walks. And uh, it, it just it was really interesting how our chocolate company was not only based on making chocolate, but spreading happiness, and then we realized that we have to spread peace with it as well. And it was not, everyone sees the result. Yes. No one knows what goes behind the scenes. Right. And, and it was not always easy. You know, there are always hardships. But we had to face the hardships with real commitment to ourselves. And I always say, if you have a hardship in your life, you have two options. You don't have a third one. You can either sit down and complain, or you can dig down and find solutions. And I didn't want to sit down and complain, and neither my dad did. So uh, I realized, yes, we have to start a business. But I'm sure a lot of people are curious, you know, about if I came here for my medical studies, then what, why am I doing, why am I CEO of a chocolate company? Right, <laughs> yeah, it's a 360 turn, but it's doing the same thing, which is saving lives, exactly. bringing joy. Um, exactly, and it's so, so much powerful to tell a story in this time. It's so much more powerful than doing anything else. And to be honest, when I um, realized that I couldn't go back to medicine, I was frustrated in the beginning. I knew that the systems here don't allow you to go back to medicine right away. So many schools asked me to do high school again. They didn't even re recognize my credentials that I brought with me. And it was, it was a tough moment for me you know, to, to realize that, yes, I can do start the business with the family. I can support my father my mother, my siblings, none of them spoke English at that time. I can do all the things that really uh, can bring them joy and happiness, can rebuild whatever was destroyed in the war. 
And uh, it just started from there. And then I realized it was never too late to become a physician. You know, anytime. I mean, you're, you're still extremely young now. I mean, there's, you strike me as someone that can do anything um, and do lots of anything at the same time. I mean, it's, it's incredible how you've uh, managed to do that. I mean, talk me a bit through like the, the logistics of just, so you decided you're going to revive the family business. What's the first thing you do? How do you, and as you say, I mean, there was a lot of support and an infrastructure. But there must have been a hell of a lot of challenges along the way. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, it was uh, it was challenging at the same time because I was enrolled with many things in town. I was helping other Syrian families who were arriving here. By the way, I was the first Syrian to arrive in Antigonish. My mom called me Neil Armstrong, <laughs> who landed in Antigonish. So one small step. Uh, exactly. <laughs> and then everyone followed me from the Syrian community. It was just amazing, you know, to be able to help the other people who were arriving here, settling in and just finding a way to, um, to survive and to thrive. And it was amazing and rewarding. But at the same time, while I was busy, you know, even with my uh, uh, studies and at that time, just settling in, you know, knowing about organizations, knowing about services that are available, I, um, I went to my dad and I said to him, um, we can start anytime you want. And then Frank and uh, the people in town, uh, we were talking about securing supplies and raw materials. And it was, you know, it was amazing how things just turned so quickly. We found the suppliers, we talked to them, who gave us, uh, you know, who even didn't take their profit for the first six months. They said, we're going to discount the raw materials for you guys so you can start again. And it was just amazing, you know, how things were just so smooth, you know. We got the raw materials, we got, uh, we're making chocolate first with our heated pots on the stove in the kitchen. The same way my dad started making chocolate in Syria, right? And that's when you know that history is repeating itself, when, when our life here was exactly as we started, as my dad started in Syria. But it took him maybe 10 years there to register the business, and that's where the 10 years came from. It's like, in theory, it will take you 10 years to register the business, to start really from scratch, while here it took us literally six weeks. And obviously things have become so successful. I mean, you're, you're sold, sold nationally, um, and you have an incredible new location in, in Halifax that That's is right. absolutely beautiful. Tell me a bit about the store and how it came to be. Well, the store idea started uh, last year in 2020. We're supposed to have been on Canada Day in 2020, um, but things have broken down where with the pandemic. And then we realized that, yes, we have to continue with it. Although with the pandemic, we thought that people would need more chocolate because, you know, it's the time really for more happiness and more, more joy. So we started thinking about moving to a place where we can resonate our culture with the people in Halifax, but at the same time, building something so modern in one of the most stunning buildings in the city. It's the, the, the most modern place is of Montreal. It's really amazing you know, to have the opportunity even to be on the waterfront. So we wanted to translate our culture into that beautiful arch that you would see there, you know, to the color of blue that reflects tranquility and peace and comfort. So the first, the first thing people would see when they enter the store is that beautiful arch that's stunning and reflective of light. It reminds me of the fountains that you used to find in the ancient Syrian houses, where people were sitting around it and just enjoying and listening to the sound of water. And you would see arches everywhere. Our entrance to the house of the building my grandfather built was also a beautiful blue arch, and that's where the idea came from. It was, it was amazingly uh, done, you know, with a lot of time. We used the time of the pandemic to sit down, 
to walk through the steps, make sure we do it right. Amazing teams have been with us, you know, Breakhouse team, the, uh, the, the Queensmark team, the people that we are with right now, they've been all there with us, really. They did not leave us do it alone. They were all really supportive, giving us guidelines about how can we make this a success and how can we translate our peaceful values into a new location. It's a flagship store. We're going to see amazing, tremendous amount of people coming to the waterfront after uh, hopefully 2021, 2022 with the cruise ships and just visiting us. So I'm really excited what the future is going to be like. But uh, it was a huge transition, to be honest. And uh, we felt that we connected with people, not only with chocolate, but through a movement. Right. And your story. It's, 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 the, it's the, the culture and the heritage. That, that, I mean, for people to walk into that store, they're ensconced in everything that is your culture. I mean, that must mean so much. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, that's what we found as well. When, when people, when we opened on March 5th, the first time we saw a line of people just trying to get in, you know, it was, it was so heartwarming. It was so heartwarming. The store was designed really to, to fit 25 people at a time. And there were hundreds of people just around the building trying to get in. It was amazingly really heartwarming to know that, that we had the support in the city as we had everywhere in the country. So Halifax is one of the major urban hubs that is very supportive to our company, to our cause, to our movement, and we are so honored to be there. But at the same time, the store and the location, it's called a chocolate boutique. Uh, people will be, will, will be experiencing the new artisan chocolate, the flavors that are so mouth-watering, you know, I even cannot start to mention some of them because we'll be craving some chocolate, but <laughs> it, it's really an incredible place that we are so proud of. And uh, I'm really proud of how it came um, along, you know, between the transition and translation of the culture into a place in downtown Halifax that will be for generations to come. People will connect to our peaceful values as well, because you would see the biggest lit peace sign in the entire region behind the arch as well. Wow. And you didn't just deliver on your promise to bring employment and jobs and work to Antigonish. I mean, you're doing it to the biggest city in Atlantic Canada too. And of course, the, the, the prime uh, resource that we have here, which is tourism. That's right. Bringing people here and the dual purpose that they come here and Absolutely. they also get to learn about your culture at the same time. Well, after I learned that Halifax was in Canada in 2016, I realized that yes, we have to, we have to be there. We have to be in the city. We have to translate our skills and talents into an opportunity for success there as well. And then the, the other reason why we started the store, building store in the middle of the pandemic, is that sometimes you would find that struggles and hardship will, will be set back, uh, but not for us. You know, we use that as an opportunity to grow. Yeah. The pandemic was not a setback for us. It was an opportunity to grow. It was an opportunity to reflect although it was really tough for us to have to close the factory last year when the pandemic started. But right now we are in uh, full swing, you know, with, with that growth mindset to be able to even spread more joy yeah. to, to people for all seasons. And that's what, what our company is all about. Peaceful and also giving away chocolate. So peace is the noble value on earth that everyone should fight for. And chocolate is our product of happiness. And without peace, no one can go to work. You cannot build businesses. You cannot do anything without peace. We cannot do this yeah. without knowing that we are in peace. And that's really at the heart of our brand and our company. Well, as you've shown, adversity propels you. So uh, it was perfect timing. That's great. 
So how did it feel to have the Prime Minister tell your incredible story at the United Nations? Oh, we, are, we were so overwhelmed with joy that night, to be honest. We were watching the news like every other Canadian. And my dad and my mother, I used to translate the news for them every day. And I went to them and I was like, um, uh, sorry, but this time is very special, so you have to listen. And then I said, the Prime Minister is talking about us at the United Nations right now in New York City to Barack Obama, to Angela Merkel, you know, to the leaders of the world where we are living here in Antigonish. Our lives were just, you know, we we're just rebuilding the business. They could not believe it. No one really could have believed it. And we were so honored, to be honest, to, to have that shout out by the prime minister. It was incredibly, um, I think, humbling moment for us as well to know that we are on the right path and to know that with whatever you do in life, you can also become an example to others and an inspiration. And that's really the, the moment of pride that we, we hold as a family since we arrived here is we did not only do things for ourselves, we did things for others. And it was, it was the, from that perspective where our family celebrated for, for, for many nights, you know, for our phone in the house, the landline did not stop for three days. People were calling us from all around North America, from all around the, the, the country, and they were saying, you know, uh, welcome to Canada, you know, you are an inspiration, you are amazing, your story is amazing, and it was really phenomenal at that time because uh, the Prime Minister as well was in Nova Scotia a month before, and my sister had a chocolate gift for him, but she could not get to him. Like, she didn't know, it was so crowded, there were thousands of people there. Yeah. And then my mother went to her and she was like, Tagre, don't be sad. The prime minister will ask us to go see him soon. She didn't know at that time that he was going to talk about us. It was that mother's instinct that came to play, that came to play. And, and you know, the, we, saw, we met the prime minister a month after his speech at the United Nations when he came to Nova Scotia to Sydney. It was incredibly honoring really to just uh, see that the country was really embracing newcomers, supporting them, giving them an opportunity to succeed. And at the basics of the values of this country of freedoms and human rights and empathy um, and uh, do not discriminate against you know newcomers versus people who are born here you have the same rights as everyone who is born here and it was absolutely incredible i mean that must have been such an incredible moment to know that you had obviously taken the right path, uh, a, a kind of a, a tipping point of success. And of course, it, it essentially turned you into an overnight celebrity. I mean, how did you cope with that? And of course, you're, you're now, by this point, you were used to living in a small town where, where everyone knows everyone. But what was it like suddenly being in a position where people nationally, globally knew your story? And of course, you, you are a highly successful public speaker. How have you become, uh, how are you coping with being a celebrity? Well, you know, I am a, I'm a, a junior celebrity, maybe. I am a, a mini one, but it's, it's, really, it's really honoring to be in that position. It's really an honor to have a voice. It's really an honor to have a platform. And I feel that I'm really privileged to be where we are today uh, and having a voice that I can speak on many issues, not only about immigration, not only about entrepreneurship. And with the opportunity to share our story with media interviews over 500 times, with more than 300 speeches across Canada, in, in Europe, you know, I've been to the UK, I've been to Denmark, I've been to France, to the embassy at the OECD, I've been to many international summits. Yeah. And it's just really, really amazing to, to have that, that opportunity. I think uh, 
I, I hope that I'm using this platform uh, in the right way. I hope that I'm speaking to uh, you know, many, many causes that, that connect to people. And I'm trying to translate the meaning of doing business in a different way. And I think that's really what's bringing us closer to people, right? Because yeah. I truly believe these days, many CEOs and many people just talk about their ROIs, so return on investment, while me, myself, I really care about ROK, which yeah. is return on kindness. Right. I love that. I mean, so the fact that you have uh, made that decision to, to spread this message that will inspire, as you say, not just entrepreneurs, but also actually change people's mindsets, change people who've been brought up with uh, bigotry and ignorance into seeing things differently. Um, I mean, there must be some incredible moments when you're on the road traveling and speaking. I mean, what kind of things do, do people say to you after those, those shows when you, you've gone up and told your story and people come up to you? There must be a, a kind of an overwhelming amount of, of emotion. Uh, absolutely. I, I truly... Um always found it hard to get out of a crowd, you know? It, it, was, it was absolutely amazing how people were connecting and clapping afterwards, you know? These are the things that I missed after, after turning into a virtual uh, uh, keynote speaker. But when the time was, you know, I was going to people, being with them, hugging them, you know, speaking to them, being so close and intimate, it was, it was absolutely so, so beautiful. It was these moments that I will always uh, cherish. It was these moments that I will always be proud of. And uh, talking about mindset change, many people when immigrants started coming to this province in, in Nova Scotia, the approval rate of immigration has grown over 45% in the province of Nova Scotia alone, you know, after Syrian newcomers started arriving in 2015 and 2016. And I went to one of the my friends who is a, a politician here, and he said that many people were referring to our story when they were asking about the survey of approving immigration and really helping people who are surviving and fleeing war and persecution. And nothing can be more honoring than knowing you are changing the world by just being a good ambassador. Right, and doing what you do and what, and what comes natural to you. Absolutely. So of course you are now a Canadian citizen. That's um, right. How did that feel? And uh, describe that moment. Well, um, I always said that becoming a Canadian citizen is the biggest honor of my life. You know, that's why I always wear my uh, Canadian socks. Oh, nice. Uh, it, was, it was always incredible, really, to know um, that this country is our home by choice. Uh, Syria is our home by birth. Canada is our home by choice. And I will forever, you know, fight for this country with peace and be there with my Canadian brothers and sisters, uh, my fellow Canadians everywhere uh, for whatever they ask for, whatever is needed. And last year on January 15th, I celebrated that. I passed my Canadian citizenship 20 out of 20. It was 100%. It was... Oh, that's impressive. I, I just did mine a few weeks ago. Oh, I, I got 19. Oh, here you so, go. <laughs> Congratulations, you made it. How did you find the revising for the test? It was, it was absolutely incredible, you know, just to know about the... Uh, the country, to know about the culture, to know about history of the country, and to do it, to do it there, it was it was so so rewarding. You know, when when I passed my Canadian citizenship test, I, uh, I just took a, a video of mine when I was when I just finished. I was really excited. I posted it on my social media platforms, and then on Twitter, within ten hours, it got half a million views. 
And then the prime minister who was attending a summit for the NATO at that time, he replied to my, to my Twitter post and he was saying, welcome to the Canadian family, Felicitacion Tarek. It was, it was absolutely amazing you know, to know that um, I, I, I was a Canadian since the moment I landed here. I knew that. I knew that it was only about time to get the citizenship. And that's, and you know it, you arrived almost at the same time. You know the feeling that this country makes you feel that you are one of the citizens, one of the siblings, as I call them, we are because we are a big Canadian family. So on January 15th, I was born in a Canadian citizen and it was really one of the biggest moments. It was, it was the most honoring time of, of my life when I uh, took that uh, citizenship oath because I knew that at that time, Canada is my home forever. That is so beautiful. Congratulations, and I couldn't be happier for you. And uh, I hope to be joining you soon once I get my ceremony. Absolutely. And we'll just be uh, well. two boys with a dream who became Canadians. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll drink to that. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Mullinger Meets Canadians. If you like greatness, creativity, being inspired, laughing, or just love Canada as much as I do, then this is the podcast for you. So please do subscribe and review the show now. This podcast is brought to you by the business events team at Discover Halifax. Halifax is home to a diverse collection of memorable places to meet and stay, and the Discover Halifax team are the collaborators to help your event go off without a hitch. When it comes to nailing down the details, consider them your partner in planning. For more information, visit businesseventshalifax.com to plan your next event. Be sure to follow Tarek and Peace by Chocolate on Twitter, at Tarek Haddad and at Peace by Choco. That's at Peace by C-H-O-C-O. And Instagram, at Tarek Haddad and at Peace by Chocolate. Further details can be found on the edit website, maritimeedit.com. And I will see you next time. This has been a Podstarter production. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.